Big Takes is a podcast from BCA Research, informing investors with straightforward, actionable analysis of macro and market events. Hi there, and welcome to the Quick Takes podcast. I'm your host, Rakaya Ibrahim, strategist at BCA Research. Over the past few weeks, many of the major central banks held their first monetary policy meetings of 2023. After aggressively hiking interest rates to tame inflationary pressures last year, they're now nearing the end of the monetary tightening cycle. However, recent data releases suggest that economic conditions are still quite hot in many DM economies. Next week, on February 21, we'll get the flash PMIs for February, which will provide an updated assessment of economic activity across major DM economies. So a key question facing investors is how are global central banks likely to respond to incoming data going forward? To help answer this question, my colleague Rob Robis is joining me on the podcast this week. Rob is BCA Research's Chief Global Fixed Income Strategist. Rob, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, So over the past few weeks, a slew of the major central banks have had their first policy meetings of the year. The magnitude of the rate hikes that were delivered were basically in line with consensus expectations. Now, of course, in addition to the actual policy decisions, investors also pay very close attention to the communication in the policy meeting statements and the press conferences to basically inform their view on the likely future path for policy. Uh, And here there were some differences across central banks. Uh, So, for example, the Bank of Canada announced that it will pause the tightening cycle conditional on the economic outlook evolving according to its expectations. Uh, Now, the Fed, while Powell did highlight that more tightening is necessary, he also acknowledged that if the disinflation process progresses faster than the FOMC anticipates, then they could cut rates in the second half of this year. And the language from the BOE and the ECB was less forceful than it was in the past, suggesting basically that they're nearing the end of the rate hike cycle. Now, my question for you is, what were some of your key takeaways from the central bank policy meetings? Last year, global central banks were pretty much synchronized in tightening monetary policy aggressively. So do you think that we're likely to see greater policy divergence across major economies this year? Uh, Yes, I do. And I think the the main reason for that is we are no longer in an environment where central banks are having to do the same thing as they were last year, which was coming off zero rates or very, very near zero rates, which were put in place to fight the COVID recession uh, in 2020 and having to rapidly catch up to uh, accelerating inflation. We were seeing kind of consistent moves by across all the central banks to raise rates, 50 basis points, maybe cases, some cases 75 basis points and signaling more to do. But now we're talking about where rates are going to peak out. And that's where the difference lies, is that the neutral interest rate is not the same for all these uh, countries. So even though the, the path to get to where rates are last year was a common path, now there's more differentiation because the, the end of that path is different. So in the case of the U.S., we're talking about you know, a, a higher neutral rate. Uh, and then say what the Bank of England has to deal with, for example. What, in our estimation, I think you know, one to two percent is where maybe the Bank of England's neutral rate would be, and then in, in the U.S. is probably somewhere two and a half to three. And you know, we're, the market's now debating could be even higher than that. So the messaging that we're you know hearing, sort of Bank of England saying you know by mid-year they'll be done, ECB saying one more move on 50 basis points next meeting, and then they'll evaluate. 
the Fed kind of keeping the door open to do more hikes, but not necessarily dismissing cuts into the year either. And Bank of Canada saying they're they're pausing. We're at levels that at four and a half percent look very restrictive with the housing market and intersensitive parts of the Canadian economy really starting to suffer now. So you're starting to see that differentiation. Right. And on that front, I mean, you mentioned that markets are debating whether maybe the neutral rate in the U.S. should be revised up a little bit. Uh, And if we look at the economic data, the recent releases have generally surprised to the upside. Like this is evident basically in surprise indices in the G10. The economic surprise index has been climbing. It's in positive territory. And that's also the case more recently in the case of the U.S. economic surprise index. How concerned are you that the recent economic data suggests that policymakers will have to stay hawkish for longer? And do you think that financial markets are underestimating this risk? Well, I think financial markets are pricing in, you know, not, no, it's not so much the pricing that where the peak level rates are, the fact how quickly expectations are moving towards rate cuts after that. The, the signal that at least certainly the Fed and even some other central banks have been saying is that, as you said, raising rates to a certain level and keeping them there for a while. And markets are saying, no, you're going to raise rates and almost immediately start cutting, you know, start cutting or a very quick move to uh, to rate cuts. That is the this the disconnect between the market pricing and central bank communications has to be resolved. And if the data continues to print, you know, to, surprisingly to the upside. That just makes that whole central bank's higher for longer scenario the more likely scenario. Even in an environment of inflation cooling off, because if the economy is not slowing uh, in a meaningful way that makes unemployment go up and loosen some of the, the, the supply constraints that are that's still evident in, in, in much of the G10 economies, it's really hard for central banks to, to forecast inflation going back or below their target uh, without having very restrictive rates in the first place. Uh, the Bank of England kind of stands out there. Their own forecast, they have inflation falling to, to near 0% by 2025, but they have rates going to 4.5% in their forecast. So that tells you something that they must think in their models that monetary policy is extremely tight already to have inflation forecast be below their target. But that's the kind of message you have to see from policymakers and central banks to say they, they're done on the rate hikes is that they can actually forecast inflation being below their target. The Fed's not there yet. Even their forecast, the most recent ones in December, Stop inflation within two years being above uh, their 2% target. We'll see if we get a new set of forecasts next month. We'll see if they can plausibly signal inflation falling below 2%. But if the data is printing strong and the labor market after that 500,000 500, job increase in January, I mean, that, that kind of resets the clock for the Fed to start looking at the labor market and saying, well, we need a few months of weakness before we can signal a pause. Well, we were starting to maybe see that a little slowing into last year. You're not really seeing that now, at least with the January data. So it does raise the risk. And in Europe, too. I mean, the, the recovery and the sentiment you're seeing in Europe, a lot of it is because the energy price story has come down. That's meaningful because the energy prices were a huge break on growth last year in Europe. And it really depressed sentiment. There's a perception that there's going to be this natural gas, energy, electricity shock that was just going to tip Europe in recession. That hasn't panned out. So it just gives the ECB more confidence to go be uh, tighter for longer. I do think the market has to realize that to the extent that growth is looking better expected, that means monetary policy has to be more hawkish and tighter for longer than expected. So let's shift to Japan. Earlier this week, Kazuo Ueda was nominated to be the Bank of Japan's next governor. Uh, when his name was first floated at the end of last week, the Japanese yen briefly strengthened on the back of expectations that he won't be as dovish as some of the other potential choices. 
So do you expect to see any major changes in BOJ policy once Governor Kuroda's term ends in April? And do you think that economic conditions are falling into place for the BOJ to become less accommodative? Or is it still too early to bet on a shift in that direction? Yeah, I think what's interesting about Japan, this is a framework for thinking about Japan in any cycle, not just the current one, is that the policymakers, the government, hate market volatility and really hate extreme surprises. And I think the idea of having a change of leadership at the top of BOJ and sort of the first move by a new governor to be a rate hike or maybe even just increasing the yield cap on tenure yield, something that's a monetary tightening move that create more volatility, create a market perception that the new regime is in place and they're much more hawkish than the old regime. So, you know, you uh, wait as history in the past, and he's a, he's a BOJ board member from about 20 years ago, so quite some time ago, but he was someone who's perceived as more of a dove at that time. Now he's perceived as someone who's more pragmatic, currently in academia. So I think the parallels to sort of a Ben Bernanke kind of uh, person taking over BOJ, uh, you know, some academic taking over the thrones of a central bank. He'll be someone who will look more to assess the data, assess the situation before making a move. I think that was the, the message they want to convey by this choice, if he does actually uh, replace Corona. I think it's all this notion that they do not want to shocking the markets too disruptively. It's the same as you see the Japanese yen goes through a sort of rapid moves out of direction. The Ministry of Finance officials there will make some comments worrying about currency volatility. It's the same thing with bond yields. If they were to move too soon on raising rates within that yield cap, you could see a 10-year Japanese yield, which is currently capped at 50 basis points, can go to say 1% pretty quickly if that yield cap wasn't there. That would cause a problem for Japanese investors, Japanese banks that have a big bond portfolio. Uh, it creates some major losses. So I think that managing that process uh, towards rate hikes, because it, it, we're moving that direction, right? Japanese inflation is above 3%. Uh, unemployment is very low. Like the same reasons we've seen every other central bank in the world raise rates over the last year are now even evident in Japan. So it's, it's pretty hard to have this policy of just keeping rates as low as possible forever, <laughs> seemingly, uh, can fit with this actual inflation, what the economy is doing. So I think some move will have to happen, but I think this change in leadership is being managed in a way that will kind of drag the process out. So we may, could Corona do one last move before he leaves? That possibly, you know, could they raise the yield cap even more? I think more likely the, uh, the new person will come in, the waiter or whoever comes in, uh, and something around, you know, by mid-year after some assessment, they could talk about next adjustment rates, but I think it will be towards higher rates in Japan. And it probably does mean something in terms of renewed yen strength uh, that's going to come on the back of that as well as the BOJ moves towards a less dovish stance. Great. Well, thanks for joining me today on the podcast, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Quick Takes podcast. We'll be bringing you weekly quick takes with BCA strategists on a range of macro and market topics. Stay tuned for next week's episode. 